This episode has been sponsored by Generation You Can. More about our sponsor later on in the show. You're listening to episode 194 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about metabolism and running. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational, and let the Marathon Running Podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond. Hey runners, and welcome to episode 194. My name is Letty. My name is Ryan. And thank you, Ryan, for helping me out in that intro. I am struggling with those words. I don't know why. Sometimes you need a little boost. It's okay. I do need a little boost to my metabolism too, right? Fitting. Yes. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I think that's a very interesting and cool topic. I think um, metabolism in general obviously is difficult. You have a million diet books and nutrition books all over the place and several different opinions on the topic in multiple different fields. But I do feel over time, nutrition and metabolism and energy in athletes and sports has become more known and it kind of shows with the athletes getting a little better and faster. And so hopefully, the more we learn about it, the better we can utilize information to make us faster and better. I remember in college, I I used to um, look up Gatorade and when they started that. For a little history, I did go to University of Florida. And University of Florida, I think, was the place where they invented Gatorade. And they noticed that like if they didn't give their athletes just plain water, but they gave them electrolytes also, that it actually improved their performance. And so like I feel like ever since that time, that market has just exploded. And especially recently, there's like a million different options and things you can take and drink and everything else for your marathons. I wonder if it was the electrolyte that gave them the spike or the sugar. <laughs> there's so much sugar in Gatorade. It's <laughs> I think most, I think the point, the big point of it is, is the, um, it's just not having pure water because like when you sweat, you actually lose a lot of other things. I, I don't think, so the sugar is interesting because you do use energy. And so you have to replace that with sugar when, especially in high level athletics, but you're also what they analyzed or how I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone that's actually researched it because it's been a long time since I looked it up. But I think what they originally did was they kind of determined what you were losing in sweat while you were doing athletics. And they realized, oh, you're losing like potassium and sodium and these other elements as well as the water that's coming off in the sweat. So in order to like make sure that you're being at your peak performance, we need to replace that by providing that in a drink that you can drink. And so I think that's how they originally came up with it. But it's just, it's interesting anyway. It's an interesting concept. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even just with the Gatorade, see how far they have come with that. In the 80s, they used to give their runners Coca-Cola and take the gas out. And Coca-Cola used to actually have cocaine in it. Great. (laughs) But maybe that came to be because they noticed that it was more helpful than just plain water. And maybe it was the sugar or other things in Coca-Cola that helped. Uh, Fortunately, I think we have evolved from that time period and now have better options. And maybe, you know, even though the increments maybe get smaller, at times there are breakthroughs. So maybe, you know, now or in the future, we'll have more breakthroughs that, that, you know, kind of do incrementally greater steps towards better nutrition. Yeah. 
I'm kind of still stuck on you saying that Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it. Is, I know, is that, that true? crazy? Yeah. I wonder if they still sell old bottles online on eBay or something. I, d- I doubt there is any and anything left over. The drink was, I'm looking this up online on the fly, so bear with me. But the drink was invented in ni- or 1885 by a pharmacist in Atlanta, Georgia, John Pemberton, who made the original formula in his backyard. His recipe contained cocaine in the form of extract from cocoa leaf, which inspired the cocoa part of the beverage's name. The cola comes from the cola nut, which contains caffeine, another stimulant. So I wonder if it, you know, originally originally maybe it had cocaine and caffeine or maybe just cocaine well know. it's it's not real cocaine though it's like they still chew cocoa leaves in those countries and that's not illegal but creating that you know powdered white substance that's illegal so it's probably not well, the same thing it is cocaine still but you're referring to different things you're talking about like a refined you know when they take the cocoa leaf and refine and concentrate the cocaine versus like yeah. residual amounts of cocaine that's in the leaf or whatever exactly yeah. so it probably wasn't the powder i mean it wasn't like they went to talk to Pablo Escobar and got like... That yeah, would sorry. make Coca-Cola really expensive. <laughs> Street value nowadays? I don't even know. <laughs> anyway. Although in Florida here, you could probably just go down to one of the beaches and get lucky with a brick of cocaine that floats up to shore. <laughs> I've read about that, but that's not the topic of today. And today we're going to talk about the effects of cocaine while running. Today we are talking about the metabolic process, like we said. Our guest today is Patrick David, PhD, Associate Professor, and also Chair of the Department of Health Sciences. He's also the Program Director of the Exercise Physiology. He's the Director of the Human Performance Lab of St. Joseph's University. He's studying nutrition in depth and has become to be an expert in this field exactly. So we're super lucky to have him on today. So before we get off on another tangent, do you want to get into it? Yes, let's do that. And without any further ado, here's your interview. All right, so I'm on with Dr. Patrick David. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, it's an honor and a privilege. And in our pre-recorded intro, I spoke about your titles, but maybe we can hear it from your own words. What do you do and how did you get into this field? Sure, so I am a college professor uh, at St. Joe's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am the department chair of health science program director for exercise physiology, research, you know, scientist. My PhD is in nutritional physiology and biochemistry from Rutgers University. My specialty is energy metabolism within the field of exercise physiology, a lot of fitness testing. And most of what I study is the difference of burning carbohydrates versus fats. And primarily in the past six, seven years, I've mostly been studying the endurance athlete, ultra endurance athlete. Um, I've, you know, done 50 miler. I've done the Eastern States, 100, 100 miler. So it's a little about me. It's a little and it's a lot. And we are definitely in good hands here. I'm super excited for this conversation today. And perhaps let's kick it off with a definition for you to give us in regards to um, energy metabolism. Sure. So, I mean, energy is the, you know, sort of the the capacity to do work. We'll talk about, you know, when we talk about energy, ATP is the molecule in the body. It's our energy currency. So when we say energy metabolism, it's the breakdown of food stuff, food and or drink that contains macronutrients, carbs, fats, or, um, you know, proteins. And it's our body's way of breaking those down and deriving, converting 
those break molecular chemical breakdowns or, or chemical components to energy. That energy is in the form of ATP. And why that's so important is because we want to be, we have to do energy metabolism at all times, you know, every day, every, every millisecond, all of our cells have a, a sodium potassium ATPase pump, this little pump that moves sodium and potassium in and out. So we need energy all the time. Most of what we talk about in the running world, in the exercise world, primarily relates to our skeletal muscle. So in order for me to talk right now, I have to contract muscles, you know, in my tongue, in my lips, in my lungs to push the air in and out. And when we are running, we're contracting muscles in our legs, in our hips, in our back, in our arms. And the contraction of those muscles requires energy in the form of ATP. And we don't really store ATP. So where do we get it? Well, we primarily get it from either carbohydrate or fat. Perfect. I love this. And I mean, I don't even have to talk about why runners are so different from people that are more sedentary. So let's hop right into it. Let's talk about fueling during training runs. Why is fueling so important during training runs? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's I, in general, it's all about performance. So why is it so important? Well, because if you want to run, you need fuel in order to contract the muscles to maintain whatever work output, power output, i.e. pace that you're trying to run. Uh, one of my favorite college professors, brilliant man named Dr. Malcolm Watford, studied under Hans Krebs. If anyone ever took a biology class, you'll learn like the Krebs cycle. And he studied on, that's Hans Krebs. And my mentor in grad school studied under him. So anyway, he had a textbook that he made himself for advanced nutrition. It was a two semester class and it was called Keeping Your Brain Happy. So why we want to fuel our, we really say muscles, but why we want to fuel and provide energy during a run or a training run is really from th for three reasons. The first one is the title of the book I just mentioned, Keeping Your Brain Happy. And in order to do that, you have to maintain a certain level of blood glucose. At any given moment, you know, let's say the average individual at rest is at 70 you know, milligrams per deciliter, like 70 milligrams of deciliter of blood glucose. That's only a few teaspoons of glucose. It's only like eight, nine grams in your entire body, like your whole bloodstream. But we need to maintain that minimum amount. You know, some people it might be 70, others it might be 80. So we want to maintain that blood glucose. And if our muscles are, are taking glucose out and other tissues are using it, then we're going to deplete, start to deplete it. So we want to supply some energy to maintain blood glucose. Two, we want to be able to supply energy to the working muscle. So the muscles, especially when you get to a higher intensity, are going to use more carbohydrate than they will fat, primarily because carbs can give us ATP, that energy at a faster rate. So they'll give us more ATP per second or per unit of time. Actually, those are really the two main reasons. I feel like there was a third, but it's really those two. We want to maintain blood glucose. And that primary reason for blood glucose is to maintain our brain, keep our brain happy, but then also to maintain blood glucose so we can provide a slight continual supply of that energy in the form of primarily glucose to our working muscle. Okay, perfect. Um, and so a question, a follow-up question to that is, we hear about depleting it from you right now. If we were to continuously deplete it every day, we run without fueling and we end up depleting it. 
is that a way of training our bodies to work on less? And is that something that will later on help us? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, the short answer, my answer to almost any question, I literally teach this every day in class is it depends because everything is context specific. But in general, I think the short answer would be yes. Is that a way of, of sort of training and or a form of stressing our body, overloading it in a certain capacity, and then getting our body to want to adapt? Yes. Now, actually, to sort of piggyback or go back a second, when I when we say the word deplete, we have to think, well, what are we depleting? So I guess the third reason why we would potentially, not necessarily during a training session, but why we would want to fuel would be one, maintain blood glucose. So we could deplete that. And then if we deplete that, we're not providing the, the working muscle with a supply. It doesn't now have access to that blood glucose. But prior to all of that, leading up to you going out on a tra- any type of a training run, we store that sugar, the glucose, which is the main carbohydrate. We store that as glycogen in our muscles and in our livers. So that's another thing that if you ate like a decent meal, as long as you ate decently well yesterday, if you woke up this morning, A, that's a privilege. So yay. But B, when you're ready to go out on your run, you had liver glycogen, which is stored sugar. And then you had muscle glycogen, which is also stored sugar. The liver glycogen might be low because, and I know I'm sort of diverting, but I'll, I'll, I'm getting to that, that question because this is a huge thing. The liver sugar, liver glycogen is its primary purpose is to be stored. And then when you stop eating to be broken down and supply sugar glucose into the blood. So the liver can help maintain that blood glucose. The reason for storing it in the muscle is 100% pure energy. Once that sugar and glucose gets into the muscle and it's stored as glycogen, or really just once it gets in, it's never coming back out. It will only be used for fuel. So the idea would be if we go on a run and our liver glycogen is depleted, we can turn some other things into glucose so the liver can convert things if it's depleted to try and maintain our blood sugar. And that's also going to stimulate our body and the liver to want to adapt, to be able to make more sugar to keep our blood and brain happy. But if we go out and we either didn't replenish glycogen, and now we're going out on a sort of a fasted run, the idea would be, yes, we're now have asking our muscles to adapt and try and use alternative fuel source sources. And that's where you get into this term, fuel partitioning, substrate, you know, metabolism, where it's, you're, you're basically burning, is it carb or is it fat? And if you run and you're not supplying constant sugar in a drink or bar or whatever, and then you're also depleting it, and then you go for another run and you're now running in a depleted glycogen state, Yes, your body over time will adapt to burning more fat. It's going to send all these signals and now your, your, your muscles are going to adapt to increase the amount of fat that it can transport, the amount of fat that it can store, and the amount of fat that it can burn to increase the amount of energy you can provide per second because you're now putting your muscles through an environment. You're re, you're, you're, think of it as a machine shop and you're reshaping your metabolic engine, which is primarily your muscle. So yes, okay. you will you will adapt to it. It just takes time. If you didn't eat anything all yesterday after a long run, and then you wake up today and still didn't eat anything, you might feel like crap during your training run, but your body will adapt to that. 
If you go out and it's cold and then tomorrow it's really warm, your body will adapt to that. The one thing we generally don't adapt to is being dehydrated going into a training run. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so then what about not depleting yourself of food for an entire day, but just in the morning? Because I know there's this whole, you know, commotion of some runners run without eating in the mornings, be it because of time or, you know, because you're just kind of not ready to eat and then you go for a run. Um, how does, how does that affect it? Yes. So no matter what, it's, it's going to cause an adaptation. Your body is going to have to try and get used to that. So in that session and where the word depends would come from would be if I was working with like an athlete or if there's a listener, the idea would be, okay, well, is this, what type of run is this? How close to your marathon, you know, most of your list, how close is your race? If this is just a low, you know, Matt Fitzgerald, we talked, you know, this idea of 80-20. So 80% are not moderate intensity, they're low intensity. It's at the lower intensity where we tend to not burn as much carb. So if you didn't eat anything and you don't have a race coming up and this isn't a very high intensity workout, which those only happen 20%, then your body is going to adapt 100%. Should you feel bad? Now, here's where you have to take this into the context of your own life. Do you have a really important meeting that day? Do you have an exam that day if you're a student? You know, do you have like something later on, it's a presentation or like an interview. If you know you have that, you might want to eat something that morning because you might not feel wonderful after that run. In general, you probably won't feel horrible, but you might not be able to hit the higher intensities during that run when, oh, I didn't eat anything last night. Or even if I did, and I just, I'm going to wake up and do a fasted run. And that will, after like a week of running, you'll start to really adapt to that. And after two weeks of running, your cells and muscles are going to be pretty decently acclimated. By four weeks, you're now becoming a fat-burning machine, so to speak. Okay. And then I guess with all that in context, if you are only not fueling your runs that are not high intensity and all that, but then there's marathon day, obviously we fuel on marathon day. How does that affect us differently? Is there any kind of perk, I guess, for having adapted to becoming more of a fat burning machine when it comes to marathon day? Will that, I guess, in the later miles make us better? Once your liver is depleted of the glycogen, can you then handle the later miles better if you, in theory, didn't fuel your easy runs throughout the week? Or does that not have any kind of effect on it whatsoever? Yeah, so... You should be able to, the data supports that you should be able to handle those later miles better. You know, and that's, you're not really following, like we didn't even get into, like, I'm not necessarily saying follow a low carb diet. It's just, you get into this idea of nutrient timing. I think it was John Ivey back in like 96 or something, published like a book, nutrient timing, published a bunch of papers. Because the idea would be, should you be more adapted and ready for those later miles if you ran a decent number of your low intensity, even longer runs in either a fasted state or you really didn't eat much whatsoever, or you ate something that was like crazy slow absorption and you're not taking all these sugars, yes, you should. What it also gives you the advantage of is suppose they don't have something at the aid station. Suppose you're having like GI issues from whatever goo or gel or whatever you had at the last aid station. The idea would be 
if you're that type of individual who only fuels, you're, you're, you're forming your metabolic muscle engine to burn almost exclusively sugary drinks and sugary foods, then you need those sugary drinks and sugary foods, especially when you get to like 18, 19, 20 towards that final, I mean, you say final, you know, that those final five miles, six miles, if you're dependent on that, you need those. Otherwise that's where you will bonk because your, your metabolic machinery doesn't have the capacity to, to tap into more fat at whatever intensity you're running, if that makes sense. It does. It does completely make sense. And it makes me wonder why there has been lately so much stress on runners being told, you know, just by everything out there, you got to fuel all of your runs, wake up and fuel your runs, um, regardless of the intensity. So, I mean, I, when I give talks, I give this, this one talk, the title of it lately, when I present to conferences and things like that, it's called the carbohydrate conundrum is more better than enough. You know, and the idea would be, well, no, because enough should be enough. So going over enough, it's just the key is finding out what is enough. And a big part back in like 19, it was like 1908. It was the Boston marathon. They showed, Hey, these runners don't look so good. And they tested their blood glucose and they showed that they were low. And then these runners do look good and their glucose was good. So it's like that initiated this whole widespread well then let's just keep giving them glucose and then in the 60s they started testing glucose in the muscle glycogen the bergstrom method and then from there in the 80s and really 90s there was just this explosion of not let's see how how getting more carbohydrate in will help our performance they did look at some studies like that most of the studies were let's see how much carb we can get our muscles to burn and let's see how much carb let's see how long it takes for our gut to have to adapt to taking as much sugar as possible. And I mean, in general, once you go above 60 grams per hour, there's not a lot of data and there's just as much or plenty more data to show that going above 60 grams per hour is like, what's the point, which is crazy because not for your listeners, but like the cycling world right now, they're, they're just going insane. They're like, 200, they're going like nuts. And there's still tons of studies for like the last 20 years. Asker Yukendrup is like one of the big, he was the director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, brilliant scientist. And most of his literature shows, you know, if we give you like glucose, because you can buy like Cytosport is like pure maltodextrin, just pure glucose. You can burn approximately 60 grams in an hour. But if we give you some additional sugar, that's like sucrose has fructose, wow, we can get you to burn a lot more, but we don't really see this huge benefit from a performance standpoint. And then a big part of that as well is you have to give it time. You know, like nobody's going to sign up for a marathon if you're not currently in shape for the pace that you want to run six weeks from now, you're going to give yourself 18 plus or minus weeks to train for it. Okay, well, why aren't you giving yourself that time to adapt nutritionally to random runs that are run either in just a glycogen depleted or, you know, wake up and go out on a fasted run over time. You will adapt. Like there's very few people that wouldn't adapt. Genetics are going to play random roles, but like more often than not, most people, if you give it time, they will adapt to store more fat in the muscle and then be able to burn more fat at that same running pace. 
That's super interesting. So, you know, that also makes me wonder a little bit about um, the different types of fueling. You were talking about sucrose and glucose. Maybe you can get into that a little bit. What is the ideal fueling for an endurance runner and why? And then also maybe, you know, a little bit more detail where it gets stored and, and what the purpose is for that. Yeah. So the, I mean, the ideal fueling plan is going to be individualized for the runner. You know, if someone's a two and a half hour marathoner versus a three hour versus a four hour versus a five hour, the intensities at which you're going to run. And then obviously the duration that one person's running for three hours, the other one might be running for another hour or maybe two more hours. So generally that person running at the two, two, let's say two world's elite to like three hour, they're probably at 75, 80, maybe 85% of their max uh, VO2 max, like their max capacity. Whereas many others might run, if you're four hour around there, four to five, you might run at you know 70%, like a little bit lower than that. So that change in intensity and the change in the speed and power output, you're going to be burning more total calories per minute. And then you might be burning more carbohydrate if you're at a higher intensity. Now, from a fueling, a big part of it's going to be Try, you know, a lot of it's trial and error. We have recommendations. There's tons of studies that we've been doing, like thousands and thousands of studies over like the last hundred years. But the recommendation is, you know, we have general nutrition intake. We want to get enough protein. Protein is going to be really big, especially for runners, because you're going to replenish, repair, and things like that. And from a carbohydrate standpoint, we have is this a competition? Four hours prior, you know, you're going to want to eat like a a decent meal. It can have carbs, fats, proteins, three hours, a little bit less fat, a little bit less fiber, a little bit less protein, two hours, a little bit less of that. And then one hour, you know, if you're going to consume carb, try and make it like complex carbs. I, I'm not a huge fan of like one hour to toe the line of really taking any type of simple sugar. There are some individuals who can have what they call a hypo, uh, hypoglycemic like rebound effect where you're going to take some sugar before you run, your body's going to release insulin, which is this hormone that tells your body to store and take up the glucose. Now you lower your glucose back down and then you start running and the running alone now starts taking glucose out of the blood and your blood glucose can drop even lower. It doesn't happen to a lot of people, but if it does happen to you, you're going to bonk within 10, 15 minutes if you do something like that. So it's like, well, why are you even taking that sugar in the first place? So when you say, should I take uh, sucrose, like mixed fruc fructose, glucose. Should I take only glucose? Should I take gels? Should I take bars? A lot of that's going to be individualized for most of the training. I, I just don't see the anything less than 60 minutes. I'll actually preface that. If you're going to go out for a run for less than 60 minutes, physiologically, like met metabolically, it, the literature shows that there's essentially no need for you to consume any sugar during that, that run. Why? Because if you ate properly leading up to that training run, then you should have plenty of stored sugar in your muscle to easily last you an hour. It could last you up to two hours. You know, we'll store about 1600 calories. So divide that by four, you know, you're going to get like 400 grams of sugar stored in the muscle. The liver is going to store a smaller amount. It's going to store like a hundred grams. So maybe like 400 calories. So less than 60 minutes, like you shouldn't need anything. 
I can go into as much detail as you want about any of that stuff, but uh, you know, let me know where you want to go from there. No, I think um, you know I've been taking notes. This is all really interesting data, so I'm loving this. Um, I guess. I guess, yes, trial by error, right? Because obviously we want to fuel our long runs on the weekends and try these gels that, you know, they might taste good at 10 miles, but then at 13, 14, um, they don't taste the same. Maybe, I guess, on that one, why is that the case? Why is something that's so tasty at mile four or five not tasty anymore at 15? What happens with our body and our perception? Yeah. I mean, that's a, actually a great question. One, I, one, I haven't probably given as much thought and I, 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 there are food chemists that I know that I could ask that question to. I mean, my guess would be there's something hormonally that as the hormones over time, there's a, like a palatability where just over time, you're just, you're just going to get tired of that taste in your mouth. And Oh, as you know, let's say you're going out and you're going 10 mile, 13 mile, like, you know, like a, a longer run your, your brain is going to shift things. So as you start to get fatigued, you're going to go out on a, t even if you're running low intensity, there's an aspect of fatigue that you're going to like get to your brain's going to start shifting things towards just general survival mode. Like the only thing your brain cares about is keeping you alive in the biological world. We use like the term homeostasis and that's just keeping your body in relative constancy, you know, like a constant or relatively constant state. Your glucose goes slightly up and down. Your temperature goes slightly up and down. Your pH, your salts, stuff like that. So our brain wants that and it really wants glucose to stay normal. So it's probably just some type of preference, things going on with the brain that are just messing you up. The key with, here's the one thing that no one ever talks about. Almost all the literature that has ever been done on taking in lots and more sugar during research studies that are looking at performance. It's very rare for them to give that to you like once every hour or even once every 30 minutes. Most of the studies actually look at 15 minute boluses. It's like every 15 minutes, we're going to give these subjects this amount of sugar. And it's like, how many of your listeners, how many of you would love to pound a gel or pound some Gatorade or whatever other it is every 15 minutes? And it's like, I know I don't. So most of the literature is based on that type of controlled, you know, randomized controlled trials in the laboratory on a treadmill or on a bike. And the idea is it's every 15 minutes, they're giving you this amount. And in the real world, you're half a marathon in, or you're going out on that long training run. And it's like, who wants to A, bring that much? How far apart are the aid stations if you're running the race? And then you got to carry all that stuff. So then you get into this whole concept of like, why are they recommending so much during? And everyone uses this concept of glycogen sparing and, and that's just simply not true. So the glycogen sparing myth is that we store glucose as glycogen in our muscles. And the myth is that on a, a longer run, let's say an hour or two hours or, or even longer, by taking in dietary sugar, you're going to spare your muscle from having to tap into that stored glycogen. So you're going to keep it as glycogen and not break it down. And you're going to tell your muscle, just use this blood sugar, use the sugar that I just drank. And that doesn't happen. And the reason is because we store the sugar as glycogen because it's the fastest burning fuel that will that will give us energy 
over a 30 minute, 60 minute time period. So your muscle, when it's doing an intensity that warrants immediate energy, it's going to use the glycogen, no matter how much sugar you throw at it from the blood. All right. So then instead your muscle, your, your body uses your muscles glycogen, and then we're going to the liver. Next. Yeah, you're gonna, yeah, the liver is putting glucose out. It's either making it from some byproducts of fat, not the fat, but things that we store fat with. There's this glycerol. So your liver can make that glucose from other things. That's called gluconeogenesis. Like we make new sugar from other things, but then it stores the, the glycogen in the liver and we break it down. So that liver's purpose is to supply glucose to the blood. I have one study I was looking at this morning. It's 175 grams per hour for a two hour session. And they showed that versus, you know, like 30 grams or something. There's no difference in glycogen breakdown. Your muscles are going to use the stored sugar glucose, at, which is glycogen. They're going to use it based on intensity, based on the contraction itself. If you contract your muscles more and you crack, contract them more forcefully, you know, if you're having a, a bigger stride because you're doing a faster pace, your muscles are going to break down and go into the glycogen whenever they feel the need that they need that super fuel. We store a finite amount of it over time. Yeah, deplete it. You can replenish it and store it a little bit more, but you can only pack so much sugar into your muscle because your muscle has to store water with it, but we don't spare it. So every podcast I ever go on, I love dispelling that myth because all of the sugar gurus, their studies are the ones that are showing we're not sparing muscle glycogen. Is it possible? It's possible, but it's almost non-existent. You okay. can take in 200 grams an hour and you're still not going to spare it. Your, your muscles are still going to break down glycogen at whatever rate. If you want to take dietary sugar during a run, what it's going to do is it's going to, it's going to keep the blood glucose normal and it's going to spare the liver uh, glycogen. But anyway. Okay. So then once the muscles have been depleted of glycogen, how, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a ton of charts from endurance athletes running at a certain pace and heart rate and all that. What happens? I heard that this is probably two hours or so into your intense, high intensity run. And then what happens? We see a heightened heart rate and that's where we hit the wall and fall off. <laughs> All wheels fall off. Yeah. Well, yeah. The ultimate, I mean, there's multiple reasons why someone would like like crazy bonk and all of a sudden you just like can't run anymore because what would start to happen is once that glycogen gets low now you're not able to maintain that pace because you can't generate the energy that fast to keep your muscles contracting so you would just slow down but because the brain cares about survival that slowing down many times can come with like extreme fatigue and that would be sort of that bonk but if you're two hours in and you're depleting that glycogen, part of that then is, well, what's your hydration status? So there's other factors that are going to go into like that complete bonk. But what would happen two hours in if you were running at like, like hardcore marathon pace or at like 80, 85% or 90%, you would simply just have to slow down. Your, your muscles are going to be able to shift a little bit and upregulate the amount of fat that they're burning and the amount of like sugar they're taking out of the blood. But once that glycogen is depleted, which can be around two hours at like a high enough intensity, you're going to have to slow down. Okay, perfect. And I guess, um, well, maybe my last, maybe not, but my question is there's different gels and I know you've studied different gels in depth. I've tested UCAN since about November 
I feel great using it. It might also be that, you know, for the first time, I'm really regularly using a gel, whereas before I would just kind of take whatever was in the pantry, but I'm kind of more on a regimen right now. But I know that UCAN talks about having their slow release carbs versus there being quick release carbs. And since you have studied UCAN, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about if that works and how all that is. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I did a research study looking at testing Generation UCAN. Back then it was called Superstarch. Today it's called Live Steady. And it's a cornstarch derived, you know, carb product. And the idea is the, the big claim was always, which is what my literature showed, that it's absorbed very slowly, but it's these huge molecules, but it has a low osmolality, meaning there's not a lot of molecules in like a particular solution. So it passes from the stomach very quickly. And then it's more in your small intestine. That's where you actually like truly cleave it and break it apart into glucose molecules and bring it into the body. And that happens very, very slowly. So it doesn't slosh around in your stomach. And then it just sits in the small intestine, which doesn't slosh around and it gets broken down very, very, very slowly. So I put elite runners, uh, I tied triathletes, ultra endurance, marathon runners. They ran three hours on the treadmill and they did it three times. They either took water, they used generation UCAN, or they used a maltodextrin, which is pure glucose and absorbed faster than almost any other sugar on the market. They came, they were each came in three times. And what we showed was the water group, their glucose didn't spike, but their glucose dropped, you know, eventually over time, the maltodextrin group, their sugar shot up because we gave them 50 grams once and then nothing for the remainder of the three run, three hour run. Glucose shot up in the maltodextrin group. And then by 60 minutes, it was actually right at, and then right after 60 minutes, it dropped below resting glucose. And then in the super starch group or the live steady group, it slowly rise, rose, didn't really rise up that much. And then it kind of tapered off and lasted all three hours. I used stable isotope tracer, this fancy technique where I can collect breath and I can actually analyze how many grams of the drink you're burning per hour. And the, the live steady was still showing up in like most of the subjects at three hours. Whereas we recouped pretty much all of the maltodextrin, like there was nothing left whatsoever. And the idea there would be for me, that's uh, like you and I've talked in the past of this idea of consistency. You've got to be consistent with your training runs, you know, and it's that consistency that's going to lead to you probably towing the line on marathon day and running the pace that you want because you you have a proven track record of miles and bouts under your belt. So the idea of, of products, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll eat oatmeal on a lot of mornings, but if I'm going out on a run, I'll take with me something like the generation you can either there, they have these gel packets, which are, which are awesome. They're not as concentrated, which is great. It's not like this massive shot of sweet sugar. Um, you know, they have the bars, stuff like that. They have powder. So what I use that for is I call it like an IV trickle. It's an insurance policy. It's going to give you an IV trickle of glucose into the bloodstream. And it's going to ultimately create an almost bonk proof glucose scenario because that bonk is really blood glucose. Like your, your muscle glycogen is never going to be depleted to zero, but the brain is picking up on it. And then the brain's really going to bonk if the blood glucose gets too low. Most people that's around, if you're running, that's around like 70 
if you wear like a continuous glucose monitor, if I was working with an athlete, the in invention of CGMs, that's like a game changer. Cause I can personally dial you in and have you run out on a fasted run or give you something like the live steady. You can, and then watch your glucose and ask you, Hey, how do you feel? Let me know when you start to feel tired. And then I can identify here's where your blood glucose tells me you're getting tired. So as long as I can keep your blood glucose above that level throughout your run, then you shouldn't feel tired from a glucose perspective. So the idea would be then I can custom tailor, well, when, how many, you know, grams, how many packets of, of you can, do I need to give you over X amount of period? And the idea of that type of product is it just lasts 15 grams of it, which is, I think one, one of the packets it lasts so much longer than a 15 shot, 15 gram shot of a gel because that gel is going to go in and it's going to already start to come back down. Your body burns carbohydrate based on how much you send it. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that you, um, you know, with all your educational background are taking the same product too. So that kind of instills a little bit of confidence. Um, so, I mean, I guess since you are talking about you can in very uh, happy terms, I just want you to tell our audience whether you're sponsored by them or affiliated in any way um, to promote their product, because, you know, that's always my number one question. And now that we finally entered the world of having a sponsor, I just want to, you know, be transparent about it. Yeah. So, no, I am not paid by Generation UCAN. I have never been paid by Generation UCAN. Uh, the study that I did back in 2021 or what, what I published in 2021, um, I did get that study sponsored. I didn't receive anything. The subjects got, um, you know, like some payment and then, you know, they sent me UCAN and they helped pay for the blood analysis and stuff like that. But no, I've never been paid. Uh, I'll get some products and things like that occasionally. It, it it's one of those things where at some point there's a, a doc, medical doctor, Peter Atia, who he's been really good where he says, here are the products that I will support. And these are products that I am endorsing, not because they're paying me to endorse, but because I believe, I mean, I'm a research scientist. Like I spent seven years getting my PhD and I've been, you know, studying this stuff for many, many more it's, it's a wonderful merge when you find products in life that are just unbelievable. It's like, if you wear a pair of Lululemon, anything, you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this product is amazing. You know, stuff like that, like path projects in the running world. Uh, they've, they don't, you know, I don't get paid. Their products are amazing, but no, it's a product that it'd be different too. If I didn't test it on myself. So I can give you my expertise based on the literature that I've done in the research lab, but I've pricked my fingers like 50 times after consuming a variety of different products, including the generation you can. And I can tell you, it does not spike my blood sugar. And by default, it will. I do not crash my blood sugar. So that's what I'm going to go for on those runs. You know, you got to try the different flavors of different products. Try what, what you like. Like what's the best diet? Whatever diet you're going to follow. I can give you guidelines and my guidelines are, I'm not a huge fan of like injecting sugar into my bloodstream because I don't see the supporting research and data in the literature to say anything over 60 grams per hour is going to be beneficial. And I don't even think that's beneficial for anything less than an hour long run. And I also don't think it's beneficial on even runs that are longer than an hour that are at a lower intensity. That's what the science is telling me. That's what I'm going to tell other people. 
Okay, perfect. Now I appreciate your uh, transparency. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, I hope to bring nothing but value to your show. I, I support your success and hope to bring nothing but value to your listeners. Perhaps you can let our listeners know how they can find you if they want more information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you can go, I have a website, patdavitt.com. Uh, on there, I do a daily newsletter. Uh, the newsletter is not nutrition. It's a little bit more mindset-based. It's basically a daily newsletter of encouragement, inspiration, uh, and I just, it's a, it's a small consensus of a lot of quotes, my own writings, and there's different themes each day. And then in the newsletter, I talk about a summary. I give you backgrounds, homework items. Here's what to do in your own life. So there's like sort of a mini thing for your readers to do because every day I give them two homework items. I give them reading materials, suggestions, and things like that. So you can reach out to me um, if you ever have any questions just through there. There's an inquiry page and things like that. Thank you so much, Patrick, for speaking with me. And I look forward to having you on for another episode, perhaps on protein or something else that we can talk about when it comes to running. If you listeners have any ideas of what you want to hear um, and we can interview Patrick, let us know. You can always drop us a note on Instagram or wherever. And I guess at this point, we want to thank our sponsor, Generation You Can. If you are tired of the spike and crash or if you have some GI distress, why not give him a try? Because, you know, Emily Sisson, Sarah Hall, Emma Bates, Kiara D'Amato, all those top runners use UCAN. So we have some codes for you. If you want to use MRP as a code for 20% off, you can go to their website, UCAN.co. Or if you just want to try them, you get a sample pack of four gels for free. You just pay the shipping and you can do that by going to UCAN.co forward slash MRP. The conversation was great. It's always appreciated. I love hearing you know, thing from things from educated people so that hopefully I can learn more. And so Letty, this is um, being recorded prior to, but it's going to come out after the uh, Orlando Olympic trials, right? Yes, that's right, Ryan. This is going to come out on Monday, the 5th. And the Olympic trials happened just two days ago. So who won? We don't know yet, but <laughs> you will find out in a couple of hours because we are recording a bonus episode on this to cover the Olympic trials as media. So we'll give you all the insights from the weekend up at the Olympic trials. Which brings us to our next sponsor, ESPN, which is Letty's new employer. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I actually, you know what? I wanted to be a reporter and journalist and author and all that stuff up until I was 15. Until you moved out of the country, huh? Where all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't as quick anymore. <laughs> I couldn't just crack those jokes because the English vocabulary wasn't quite there yet. So it definitely is impressive that you can even do a podcast now after learning the language, your third language. It's good that you get to live your pseudo dream as an early teenager now. Kind of, right? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so stay tuned for next week's episode, which we haven't determined yet what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be, be great. It's always great. It's the best episode ever. <laughs> All right. So with that, we are going to go drink some Coca-Cola because you made me thirsty without cocaine and have a good week of running. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and marathon running news, please head to www.marathonrunningpodcast.com and we'll be back next week.